Hi, everybody. My name is Pat Hogarty, and welcome back to California Real Estate Principles, Real Estate 300. This happens to be show number 25. What we're going to be doing is completing or finishing off our discussion that we had the last time, which was was about appraisal methods. Uh, what we did just to kind of refresh your memory is uh, we discussed the fact that we have three different ways that we can appraise a piece of real estate. The most common way that we normally use in the residential area, residential being things like single-family homes, uh, condominiums, townhouses, if you will, mobile homes, things like that, residential types of property, is we typically use the market method. And essentially, what that means is that as an appraiser, we go out. This is kind of like a reverse engineering thing, if you will. But what we do is we go out into the community. We take a look at the properties uh, you know, that have been sold. For example, if we're appraising a home, we will look at the properties that are within the neighborhood or within that geographical area, what they have been selling for. What we're really trying to do is discover what consumers are willing to pay for property. That's what we're really trying to do. One thing I kind of want to stress is that as an appraiser, we are not an expert. A lot of times I hear, uh, when I say expert, a lot of times I hear that uh, people will say, well, the appraiser said the house is worth $400,000. The appraiser said it's worth $300,000. What the appraiser is doing is really going out there and finding out what consumers, you and I, are paying for houses and also trying to figure out why we are what how much more money we will pay for a house for example that has a pool that doesn't have a pool or how much more we will pay for a house that has a view of the Sacramento lights and Folsom Lake at night uh versus one that does not so in reality an appraiser in some cases can be looked at as an economic research person that's doing research finding out what we are doing as a community uh again uh, the market method that we use is very simple for everybody to understand. We emphasized that the last time. We mentioned the fact that we as consumers every day are going out and shopping for cars, food, clothing, and everything else. So we understand things like why we would maybe pay more for a car that had air conditioning versus one that did not. We understand that. It's easy for us to understand and comprehend. Uh, the market approach works best when we're dealing with properties that are, again, our residential properties. It does not do very well with uh, properties that are in the income-producing area. So, for example, if we're talking about apartment houses, shopping centers, uh, office buildings, it does not really do a very good job of that because maybe we'll only have a couple shopping centers in a small community. So we're not really, that approach won't necessarily work the best. So in that case, which we'll be talking about tonight, is we use something called the income approach. We also talked about the cost approach. We discussed the fact that what we're trying to do is that usually we're using that approach in areas where it might be a, a property that uh, we don't have enough market data for. Uh, it'll be something, we, maybe we're using it in the area of some kind of new construction where we know the price of the lots and we're given a set of plans, building plans, and we're trying then to figure out what the ultimate value of the property is going to be after it's constructed. So we may use it in that area. So, uh, again, there are advantages and disadvantages to each one of those approaches. Uh, you know, the concept is, is that it may cost a certain amount of money to build a house or to build a structure. 
That doesn't necessarily mean that, the, that we as consumers are willing to pay for that or we as investors are willing to pay for that. So we want to keep that in mind. So tonight what we're going to be doing is talking about the income approach. I'm going to spend quite a bit of time with that. I'm also going to be talking about the requirements that one needs to have in order to obtain their real estate appraisal license. I want to make sure you kind of understand what that is. I think I want to take some time and show you the website where you can get further information if you're interested. And I'm also going to take you to a website called the Appraisal Foundation, which essentially is set up and establishes the training criteria and the requirements to get a real, uh, to get a real estate appraisal license. And that uh, association or organization was really born out of the fiasco that we had in the late 80s where uh, the savings and loans uh, lost a tremendous amount of money due to the fact or one of the contributing factors is being poor appraisals. So one of the concepts that they had is, you know what, we need to start establishing some education, some methods of how we're going to approach that. So because appraisers, you know, the, the lenders and the consumers and the buyers of property are heavily dependent upon that, that professional value that appraisers are putting on that property. And uh, every day it, uh, that goes by, there's millions and millions and millions of dollars that are being lent based on the fact that an appraiser says this property is worth that much money. So very, very important. So what I'm going to be doing is moving over here a little bit uh, to the uh, my old friendly document camera. And what we want to do is talk, first of all, about the, ca uh, the income approach. We're going to be using some terms that I'm going to have to maybe stop and explain a little bit in detail so you make sure what these happen to be. So anyway, this is called the income approach, sometimes called the capitalization approach. So we want to stop and think about what we're really talking about here. So the income approach determines the present worth of future benefits. Capitalization is the process of converting income into value. So in reality, what we are doing is we are looking at the property. We are taking a look at how much income it produces. In other words, on a monthly or a yearly basis, and we are trying then to establish a value to the building based on the income that it produces. That's what we're trying to do. So this is the income approach is the process of analyzing future net income from a property to determine its current market value. Another word for the process is capitalization. The appraiser, when using the income approach, is determining the present value of uh, value based upon the information he or she has on future income and expenses of that given property. The actual process of capitalization is simple. Divide the capitalization rate into the yearly net income. The answer you obtain is the value of the property. Okay. So as we go through this, one of the things that's going to be important is making sure this is where we're going to have to be looking at things like the property's income statement. How much income do they generate? What are their expenses? What kinds of expenses do they have? Okay, and then therefore, how much net income does the does the property actually throw off? So that's what we're going to be talking about. I think over here, just so that we reiterate what they just talked about, this capitalization rate is really what they're showing you here is that we figure out what the net income is for the building. We divide a capitalization rate. Now, that's a rate that we have to figure out or calculate. Okay, and this is an advanced real estate topic. Let me just tell you this. This is something that's not, this is something that's covered in the, in, in, in real estate appraisal classes in detail, okay? 
and usually by somebody that's doing commercial type or investment types of real estate appraisals, not residential, but those kind. So anyway, what they're saying is, is we have a net income for the building of $110,000. We take the capitalization rate, we divide that, which is 10%, and that gives us the value for the building. Okay, That's basically what it is, and we're going to go into more detail of what that is. So uh, down below that, it says rent producing income properties such as apartments, offices, warehouses, and manufacturing concerns can best be appraised by the income approach. Okay. This is because the people who invest in such properties are primarily interested in income that they will receive. They are not, there is not the same kind of, uh, if you will, of emotional uh, value that people put on a building. In other words, when I buy a home, there's an emotional part that, that, that is attached to the value of the property. I buy a home in a certain area and I pay a certain price because it's a very prestigious area. That's something that's hard to quantify. <laughs> you know, it's prestigious. You know, the people that live in the area drive Rolls Royces and Mercedes Benz and they're, and they're thought of as being very wealthy people and that's why I buy there. Or another thing that people will look at is they buy in an area that's considered to be safe. It doesn't have a lot of crime. That's another one that's hard to quantify. Or they buy because of the fact that it has the best school district. None of those factors have anything to do with how much income that house would earn the investor or the buyer if they happen to rent it out. In fact, it's quite conceivable that we may have a house where our monthly payments may be three or $4,000 a month, but if we turned around and rented the house out, we were only going to get maybe 1500 or 2000 a month. Okay, So that's the reason why. And all you have to do to, to believe what I'm saying is just go into the Sacramento Bee Go to the housing section. First, look at the houses that are for sale. Look at what they happen to be, how much they're selling them for, and what kinds of qualities, if you will, they have. Then go into the area where you're looking at renting properties and take a look at how much you can rent them for. And you'll go, hmm, there's an interesting thing here. I look at those houses. They're three, four, five hundred thousand dollars. It doesn't take a rocket scientist for me to get an old calculator out and figure out that my payments are going to be pretty high on that. On the other hand, when I take a look at what I can rent it for, it's nowhere near what my payments are going to be. Okay, So you have to keep that in mind. What's making those properties more valuable is what we perceive the value is, not what how much money they would earn. Whereas things like a warehouse, I'm concerned. How much can I rent that out per square foot? That's my main concern. It could be a warehouse, a mini warehouse, or if I have an office building. I'm concerned how much, you know, who's going to rent from me? How much are they going to pay me in rent? That's what I'm concerned about. I am not concerned. I may have a prestige factor, you know, involved, but typically if there's a prestige factor, it usually ties to the fact that people are willing to pay more in rent, okay? Uh, if your property is owned, that's, in fact, that's why Donald Trump, one of the reasons why he runs around the country and is always on TV all the time, he's trying to pump up the image of his properties because the intention is, is if he can make them more prestigious, people will pay more in rent for them. Okay, but he's still concerned about how much money they're going to generate. Okay, so that's what we're talking about here. Shopping centers the same way, office buildings, whatever. Okay, going on from there, it says it's only natural that an investor would choose a property producing the highest return. In other words, if I'm an investor, I'm going to look for the one that's going to give me the best return on my money. It's the same old thing, like if I put the money in the bank, if I have one bank that's going to pay me 5% and the other's going to pay me 10%, if the, the risk is the same, 
I'm going to turn around and go with the higher rate of return. So the same thing with the property. If the property, if it's an office building and I have a choice of being able to get a higher rate of return on my investment or net income coming in on one building versus the other, I'm going to take the one that has the better rate of return. I'm not going to go ahead and invest in a a building that's going to give me less money. Okay, it stands to reason. It's always money, money, money. Okay, the income approach allows the comparison of different types of income-producing real estate and at the same time analyzes each as to the return of income to be received from that investment in the future. Okay, so here they give you a concept, and this is pretty easy to understand. In fact, they actually even give you a little diagram here. And they say this is the steps in the income approach. Number one, we have to calculate the annual effective gross income. Okay, annual effective gross income. We have to calculate that, and I'm going to talk about what that is. Okay. Number two, we have to complete an operating expense statement. In other words, how much does it cost me to operate that building on a monthly and a yearly basis? What does it actually cost me to do that? Okay. Number three, I have to deduct those operating expenses from that gross income that I receive. Four, I have to then divide the net income by the appropriate capitalization rate. And then five, the result of dividing the income by the capitalization rate gives me the final value. So here, they just give you a diagram. They just, you know, here you start off with the uh, annual effective gross income minus the annual expenses. Reserves, by the way, just so you know, the term reserves is where we are putting a certain amount of money aside so that in the event that something happens to, uh, you know, for example, I'm not sure whether they did it in this book or not, but we may have an air conditioning system in the building. And what we need to do is we need to put some money aside to maybe replace that or for some other reason. So that's what reserves are, that a takeover in the event that we have a problem, we'll have to replace something. The third thing is, is we have our net income, which, you know, you take this minus this gives us our net income. We divide the net income by the capitalization rate, which we'll talk about what that is, and then that's going to give us our final value. Now, the thing that becomes important in this, in this, in, in this, in this approach is we have to understand what it is that we're adding, subtracting, and multiplying and dividing. In fact, one of the things that you'll find is that if you're in the account, accounting business or you're an accountant, you're probably going to find out that most of the time, most of the math you're going to do is add, subtract, multiply, and divide. Occasionally, you may do some algebraic stuff, but that's basically what you're doing. You're not getting very complicated in what you're doing. What becomes important is the classification of things. So classifying, is this an expense or is this a capital improvement? Is this income? Okay, why are, you know, that's what we're talking about. Classifying that stuff becomes important so we know where to put it. So, for example, step one. Calculate the annual effective gross income from the investment property. And it tells you here that the effective gross income is the gross income minus any vacancies or rental losses. Okay? Vacancies are this. If I take and I have, no matter how hard I try, no matter how hard I try, chances are that my building is going to have some period of time in which there are going to be either apartments apartments or offices, or if it's a warehouse, there's going to be space in which somebody is not going to be occupying or using it, and I won't be receiving income from that. 
Now, one of the jobs of a good property manager, especially property manager and on-site manager, is to make sure that the building is close to 100% occupied as possible. But even if you have people that are standing <laughs> at the front door to move in when somebody else is moving out the back door, you're still going to have some loss of some kind of income coming in. Uh, typically, it's not uncommon, for example, when people move out, whoever they happen to be, if it's an apartment house, we may find out we may have several days in which we have to go in, we have to clean it up, we have to repaint it, we have to fix the sink, we have to do something after the people leave. Those days, we don't receive any money. It's vacant. Okay? Uh, we may find out that if we have an office building, for example, that uh, it's not very easy to just go out and replace that tenant that's been there who's maybe been an accountant or an attorney or a doctor's office just very quickly. It may take quite a bit of time to find somebody to come in and take and re lease that space again. It may take, and in fact, if we go out to the farthest extreme, if you take a look at some of the shopping centers that are around town, once those big tenants move out, like I remember in town here, we have a, an electronics company that used to be around here, sold TVs and stuff called the Good Guys. Their, their store space that they had that was an Arden Fair and they had out in Sunrise area had been vacant, you know, for, especially the one out in Sunrise for a long period of time while they wait to get somebody to move in. And it can be very, very difficult. They can sit there and suffer vacancy for a long period of time. So, uh, you want to keep that in mind when you're looking at that. I can just think, uh, there's a small shopping center that's out in Folsom that's near one of my favorite places. Uh, well, it used to be one of my favorite places, but they closed, which is a Carvel ice cream place. And it's almost like except for uh, on one end of the building a Sylvan Learning Center and on the other end a New York pizza place. Everything else in between is pretty much vacant. What they had in there was like a motorcycle shop. Well, that moved out, you know, and that left a huge amount of space. Uh, the Carvel place is closed, okay? So, you know, the, the, the landlord is sitting there and not receiving income from that. So a very, very uh, important factor. The second thing is, is besides that vacancy fact, there is something called, um, uh, something, let me see if I can find this here, uh, gross income minus any vacancies or rental losses. Now, rental losses are typically, um, typically where maybe, the, 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 either the landlord or the manager, it's always usually the landlord that drives this, decides that they need to do something to generate people to move into the place. In other words, what's ended up happening is maybe, uh, maybe the place uh, had some problems, they moved some tenants out, or it needed some repair work of some sort, and now what they do is they start dropping the rents. So you'll see something where maybe you'll drive around town, you'll see a sign that says uh, first month's rent free, two months free, uh, two months worth of rent free. Okay, what they're trying to do, or, you know, they'll say, you know, our first year's rent, if you sign this weekend, first year's rent, it's normally going to be $700 a month, but we'll charge you $600 a month if you move in. Well, what's happening is, is that that's rent that's lost by the landlord. They're not receiving that rent. So it's a loss in rent. So we have vacancy, meaning it's not vacant. We also have loss in rent because people have had to maybe do something to stimulate the, the rental market in, for that particular project in that area. So that's why I think in here they say, uh, they go down here and they just say basically sometimes, sometimes 
managers charge rents that are below the market level, resulting in a low, uh, a very low number of vacancies. So what they're trying to do is they're trying to fill the apartment houses. They're trying to fill the shopping center. They're trying to fill the offices, whatever. Uh, on the other hand, rents that are set too high usually yield a high vacancy factor, okay? So, you know, that's what the, the, the landlord is always trying to strike. He knows if he has the rents too high, he's going to have a lot of people just flat out won't live in there because they're too high. On the other hand, he could be losing rent because he's got them so low trying to fill those vacant things. So he's got to strike a place in between. You know, we throw around vacancy factors like 5% as being a standard. You know, that, we, that no matter what we do, we're going to end up having that. Okay, uh, the vacancy factor is the loss of rents due to, uh, due to any cause, okay? You could have that uh, vacancy because you're doing work on the place, because the rents are too high, because there's a brand new apartment complex that went in across the street, and nobody, you know, everybody's moving in there because it has all the brand new features, Okay, it has a state-of-the-art gym and a state-of-the-art this. That's why when we go to, for example, like hotels, we'll see that one of the things that hotels have been doing in the last couple of year, last number of years is they've recognized that the public wants to have a place to go work out. You know, they want to have a gym. They want to have a swimming pool. Uh, nowadays, if you go to uh, a hotel, there's an expectation not only by business people but normally by just everyday consumers, that those people will have access to the Internet in their room, okay? So if you have a place that doesn't have that, people won't stay there, okay? So you may find out that you're having to do those kinds of improvements to get people to come back, okay? Anyway, so you want to understand what the income is, where it's coming from, what kinds of income you have. Remember, you may have income from rental. You may have income from some other types of services you provide, uh, off the top of my head, I would say that you may have income if you have an apartment house where you may have a laundry uh, laundromat there that people come in and do their laundry. There could be other things that are generating income. Number two, you're going to complete the operating expenses. So operating expenses mean what things that we have to pay in order to operate this building on a regular basis. So what you're going to do is some of the operating expenses would be things like property taxes. Okay, Remember, we may have county property taxes. We may have something depending upon the building in the city. We have insurance that we will have, you know, property insurance, liability insurance, fire insurance, different kinds of insurance, licenses, if there's any licenses that you have to have in order to operate. And just don't think about apartments. Think about other kinds of, of uh, if you will, rental types of property, office buildings, shopping centers. You're going to have manager fees. And those manager fees could also be broken out into things like on-site managers, for example, in many warehouses those places that you see that are along the highway where you can go in and put all that stuff, that extra stuff that you've been accumulating so you now have more room in your garage to put more stuff in there. If you go in there, most of those places have on-site managers that have an apartment, and their job is to, you know, they live right on the site. They're there seven days a week, and their job is to keep those mini warehouses filled. And so they'll do things. If you go there to rent a space, you'll find out your name will go on a list. They'll be calling you. Their job is to keep that place going. So you have to pay some kind of a fee to those people to manage that stuff. Utilities would be another thing. Now, keep in mind that there's utilities that tenants are going to pay. That would be like their phone bill, their electric bill. But then there may be very well other utilities that you pay, for example, for outside lighting, hallway lighting. Uh, you may have a certain amount of heating or electricity that the building has to have regardless of whatever, 
Okay, so there's other kinds of utilities that you may very well have to have in the in the building. Uh, maintenance, repairs, and services. So maintenance would be having somebody come out and fix the heating system or the air conditioning system. Repairs would be things. Remember, repairs are not capital improvements. Repairs are things like uh, the door just fell off the hinge. We need to have a handyman come out and fix it. Okay, the carpeting is loose. Have somebody fix it. Uh, painting. That would be all repair kind of stuff. A brand new roof on the structure would be a capital improvement. Okay. Services, things like gardeners, you know, so you have somebody comes out there, trims the bushes, and we see this all the time. I mean, stay at a hotel, you got somebody out there trimming the bushes. You look at apartment houses, you got somebody out there cleaning up the driveway, trimming the bushes, mowing the lawn. So, you know, those are all things that you have to take care of. Uh, pool services, uh, such as if you have a swimming pool, you got chemicals, you know, all those things are things that you have to have to maintain it. And then, of course, replacement reserves, reserves for things that are going to break on you that you know are going to be fixed. So anyway, that all comprises your operating expenses. Notice that there's nothing in there about making mortgage payments. Okay? Okay? It goes down here and it says, the cost of capital mortgage payments of principal and interest is not an operating expense. Okay? Down after that, we also need to look at there's different types, just so we understand how this works. There are different types of costs. There's costs called variable costs and costs called fixed costs. Let me explain what this happens to be. A fixed cost means that it doesn't make any difference whether you rent it out or you don't rent it out. You still have to pay it. So, for example, property taxes would be a fixed cost, you know. It doesn't make any difference whether anybody's living there or not. You've got to pay it, okay? Um, things like the pool. If you've got to maintain the pool and have a pool service or a garden service, that has to be done. That's a fixed service. It has no bearing on whether you have 50 people living there or 100 people living there or no matter what, you still have to pay that, okay? That's a fixed expense. A variable expense is going to change depending upon how many people you have that you're renting out to. Okay, so as an example, you may very well have where, um, say, for example, your building happens to have no way to meter the water. There's no way for you to say that apartment uses this much water. So what ends up happening is, is that you're paying the water bill for everybody. This is just an example. So what happens is, is that if you, as you rent the place out, your water bill goes up, <laughs> goes, goes this way goes up. As you have less people, there's less of a water bill. And typically what would end up happening is, is that you're, you know, the less people, less water bill, more people, more higher water bill. Same thing with sewer, you know, because usually sewer and water are tied together. So the point is, is you want to know that every time you add another apartment to that, you know, that you're renting out or another office, you are not only getting the income, but you're also increasing the expenses. Hopefully that makes sense to everybody. You know, so it's not like, oh, wait a minute, if I get, you know, $600 a month rent, I'm, I'm home free. No, you got $600 a month rent, but you also got some variable expenses that are going to go up along with that, okay? Uh, so anyway, you want to make sure you consider that, okay? Then the next thing you're going to do is you're going to deduct the related operating expenses from the gross income, okay? That's going to get you the net income for the building or for the project, Okay? 
So that's a simple math thing. You know, that's math. That's not hard. It's just the, it's, it's the classification that becomes difficult. The next thing you're going to do is then you're going to divide the net income by the appropriate capitalization rate. Now, this gets to be a little bit touchy here, trying to figure out what this really means. You have to bear with me on this. And first it tells you, in the book what they do is they more or less expect that you're given something or understand what it is. And then later on they tell you what a capitalization rate is. So I have to spend a little bit of time and explain that. At least this, is, again, is something you would spend a lot of time in an appraisal class understanding how to, how to create this. But for our purposes, we just want to make sure that you get the conceptual idea of what we're talking about, okay? So anyway, number four, it says divide the net income by the appropriate capitalization rate. Selection of a capitalization rate can be a delicate task. A 1% change in a capitalization rate, for example, can alter the estimated value of the property up to 10% or more. And all you have to do to prove that to yourself is just play, start playing with the numbers and you'll see what will happen. You change, you change that rate by 1% and it's going to have a dramatic effect on your building one way or the other. Okay, so this is a very important factor. Um, okay, uh, the capitalization rate is composed of a return to the investor on his or her original investment, okay? Number two, and of the amount to replace the building later, okay? So I'll say this, and, and, and it's going <laughs> to take time. What you're really doing is you're taking and saying, okay, let's say I'm putting up $10,000 in the bank, and part of that capitalization rate is what kind of a return am I getting on my money? Okay, 5%, 6%, 7%, or whatever. The other part of the capitalization rate is realizing that that asset that you have is decreasing in value. It's wearing away. So we have to account for both of those factors in order to come up with this capitalization rate. And you're going to have to think about that for a while and probably read a little bit about it to get an understanding of what's going on. Okay, so let's see if this helps at all. It says, an example, an owner of a vacant building is trying, well, let me, I'm not sure whether this is going to answer or not. The owner of a vacant building is trying to decide whether to lease her building to a hardware store or a post office. The owner would likely prefer the post office because the post office would probably have a lower capitalization rate than the hardware store. I don't know why they threw that in there, by the way. You know, I, I don't know why. I don't even know why I read that because it's, it adds to the confusion is what it does. Okay. Uh, going down here, it says there are several ways to select the proper capitalization rate. One way of selecting the appropriate capitalization rate is to sample similar recent apartment sales. Okay. Now, there's a problem with this because keep in mind... <clears throat> Now, also keep in mind that if you're an appraiser appraising these kinds of properties, you've got a whole community of people that you work with. You may be very well or also have appraised properties that are very similar. You have your own data, your own database or whatever. But remember, we were talking about income and expenses. So we would maybe necessarily know what the building sold for, and we would know based on what somebody would tell us what the income was coming in, but we wouldn't have privy to all that in-between information which can get to be a problem. We don't understand how that's really put together. It's kind of like using the market approach to appraise a piece of property. We go into our subject property, and we take pictures. We know what the bedrooms are like, the bathrooms, what kind of floors, 
we know what kind of tile it has. We know everything about the house. We've measured it. We've done everything. But the houses that we use as comparables, we don't do that. I mean, people do not knock on my door every day and say, excuse me, Pat, do you mind if I come in and measure your house? You know, do, do you mind if I check it out? No, they don't do that. So they're only, the only place that they have a complete understanding of is the house that they're appraising. The other ones, they're having to get on the phone and maybe call the agent that sold the property or talk to the listing broker or something like that to get it. But they can't go over there and knock on the door and say, excuse me, I'd like to come in and look at your countertops. Okay. Same thing when you're looking at any other kind of information. You know the income from your building, but you don't necessarily know, unless you've done the appraisal or know the appraisal, what the income was for the other one. So it can be a little bit difficult doing this. Okay, so capitalization rate, how do we figure this out? Okay, so they give you two things right here. They say the total capitalization rate is 10%. 8% of that has to do with the return on investment, which is essentially like saying I put, I put $10,000 in the bank and I get 8% return on my money, okay? That works out to be $800 a year. Okay, that's very simple for me to do the math. So that's like, what am I going to get as a return on my, you know, money that I put in the bank? This is going to be the recapture rate over here. Okay, this is going to be the building is declining in value, if you will. So let's see if we can get this. So the capitalization rate is composed of two parts, the rate of return on the money invested and the return of the asset that may be decreasing in value but is rising in replacement cost. Okay. So in other words, when you buy the property, it's worth a certain amount of money. The property, as time goes by, is doing what? It's depreciating in value. It's wearing away. Okay? It's wearing away. The example I like to use is like if we have a place that, you know, the, the area that we have a house or let's say a structure, structure, the value that we can depreciate is $300,000. The number of years we're going to depreciate it over is going to be 30 years. If we divide the 30 into the $300,000 tells us, at least mathematically, that the value of that structure goes down $10,000 per year. Every year that goes by, because of inflation, it costs more for us to fix that or improve that building. So maybe that building at that time cost $300,000 to build. But as time goes by, 30 years hence, it's going to cost a lot more than $300,000. So the concept is, is it's decreasing in value, but the cost of replacing it is going up. Again, this is, again, not an appraisal class. It's just to let you know what this capitalization rate is. This is uh, more of a, this is several lectures to get this part, okay? Okay, um, it's rising. This later item is commonly referred to as the recapture rate, okay, or depreciation. We've talked about that in the past, okay? So what happens is we have those two rates, which ends up with our capitalization rate. That's how we get that, okay? Um, the, so anyway, the final step, step five, is result of dividing the net income by the capitalization rate. And here is where they finally show you here what that is. They basically say here is that you have a net income. Remember, you've done all the math and you finally got that down. And remember, this is net income for the year. That's very, very important. You'll see when we get to real estate math, we have to make sure we compare apples to apples. Because when we talk about rates of return, we're not talking about rates of return per month. We're talking about rates of return over the entire year. 
So this would be its net income for the year divided by the capitalization rate gives us the estimated market value of the property. Okay, that's what that is. The, this here is something we can figure out by looking at the financial statements. This here is something we have to calculate, which is a separate entity. Okay, and then that'll give us our thing. But what we're trying to do is figure out the value of that income stream because we don't care. We absolutely, you know, and reality as an investor, we're concerned about getting a return. We're interested on in how much money we're going to earn. Okay. Now, the next kind of indicator you can use is uh, to get value. And where they typically will use this is when they're trying to get a rough and dirty estimate of the value of the property. It's called a gross, gross rent multiplier. Gross rent means that I'm not doing what? I'm not considering any expenses. This is another way of doing the income. I'm just taking a look at this. And I'm doing a gross rent. I'm looking at the gross rent, and I'm figuring out how much people are paying for a property based on the gross rent that they're able to collect on it. Okay? So I'll see if we can explain this a little bit. Okay, the gross rent multiplier is a multiplication. It's a rule of thumb used to convert rental income into market value. Okay? If we use gross rent multiplier of 125 times the monthly rent of $1,000, the property is worth $125,000. Simple math. 125 times 1,000. This is definitely not an accurate way to appraise a property. It's not. It's not an accurate way. It's a way. It's a rule of thumb. It gives you a rough idea. It's like when we talk about per square feet. It's just a rough estimate is all it really is. Okay, so this is definitely not an accurate way to appraise property, but it does give a quick estimate of its value. Many professional investors use it as a screening device to eliminate undesirable investment properties. So in other words, if I'm just looking at properties and I want to figure out, okay, should I even spend more time looking at it, I'll look at the gross rent in relation to what it's selling for. Okay, that's all I'm doing. Down below here, they give you some more examples. They say the gross rent is the money received from the property before any expenses are deducted, any. It can be expressed as a monthly or an annual income as long as it is applied consistently. So what we don't want to do is talk about monthly in one breath and talk about annual in the next breath. And they give you an example here. Again, they say the gross rent multiplier is based on the monthly rent only and is used for residential properties. Example, you have a desert cabin which rents for $600 a month, just sold for $96,000. A similar property rents for $660 a month, so the market value is most likely $105. What they did is they didn't do the division here, which we'll do in a minute to help explain how this works. This is how you do the gross rent multiplier which they didn't explain very well. And I'm going to go through this. And this is something that we can get. This is information that we can typically get from the listing of, say, we're doing residential property. Usually in the multiple listing system, they're going to give us a price, and they're going to turn around, and they're going to give us things like mortgages. They're going to give us uh, how much rent they're getting. So this is stuff that we can find out. So we can compare two properties, let's say. So to run the gross rent multiplier, this is how it works. Uh, first of all, it's a rough, quick, and uh, quick way to converting gross rent monthly rental income into value to obtain the gross rent multiplier. Divide the monthly rent into the sales price. 
It is not a very, you notice they keep giving you caveats. It's not a very accurate method, but it is a good estimator because it's easy. The gross rent multiplier. So here we have the sales price divided by the rent gives us the gross rent multiplier. Now, one thing that I noticed your book made a mistake when I was doing this, and it kind of threw me for a while, is that this figure right here is incorrect. What they did is they said the result was 30. It's not 30. It's 130. Okay? So, anyway, a typical problems. If a house that rented for $600 a month sold for $78,000, what is the gross rent multiplier? You take the $78,000 and you divide it by $600 a month, and it's not 30, it's 130. Just do the math. Just put it into a calculator, and it, it, it comes out that way. So now, now that we know what this gross rent multiplier happens to be, we can take the multiplier and multiply another property's gross rent to come up with the value. So they'll give you an example here. They say a similar house down the street is renting for $690 a month. What would the selling price be? You take the, the monthly rent of $690 times the gross rent multiplier, and that gives you what the property should sell for. Okay? So this is a way you can compare properties and start being able to figure out, should I, is this property a better deal than that property? Okay, it's the gross rent multiplier. Uh, they go on from there, and they just talk about it more. They just say, uh, can annual rents be used? Uh, the gross rent multiplier is not a percentage, so it, can, so it can be expressed as either a monthly or an annual figure. If the above problem were expressed as an annual rent figure, the gross rent multiplier would have to be divided by 12, okay? So you take the 130, divide it by 12, and then this will give you what it is on an annual basis, okay? And if you do the math, it works out, okay? Just a quick and dirty way of doing it. Okay, finally, what are the advantages and disadvantages of this method, okay? Okay. Uh, Again, you know, the, the, you know, the advantages, it says the advantage of the income approach method is that no other method focuses solely on determining present value of future income stream from the subject property. So the cost approach doesn't, the market approach does only the income approach does. Okay, going on from there, it says it is, it is a little different from the other two methods of determining value in that if the property purpose of the property is to generate income, use the income approach, okay? So they go on from there. They say, for example, a house that is zoned for commercial use may be valued at a much higher amount when it is, when it is used as an insur insurance office rather than a house, okay? We see houses like that. We see properties like that around Sacramento. I can think of several of them that are along El Camino Avenue, Marconi where you can look at it and say, at one time this was used as a house. It's now used as a beauty shop. It's used as a law office, as a, as a chiropractic office, whatever. And so what it is is now you can't value it as, as uh, residential property anymore. You have to value it as income-producing property, which it may very well generate a heck of a lot more money as income. You may take the same house that's down the street that looks just like it, and maybe it's a residential house and there's a family living in there, and they may be only getting 1000 or 1500 a month in rent, whereas the other one is getting a substantial amount more return. Okay. Uh, disadvantages uh, of the income approach is that it may be difficult to determine the proper capitalization rate. Hello. 
That's true. Uh, for example, it may be impossible to ascertain the cap rate for a theme park or an alligator farm. These are other items are used in the income approach. may also be difficult to estimate vacancy rate, economic rent, so on and so forth. You are going to find out that the reason why we have this distinguishing fact between a residential appraiser and a commercial investment appraiser is that, you know, it just is a different mindset. That person that's doing investment property probably is having to do more travel, maybe looking at different types of property that are maybe not even locally located in Sacramento, maybe doing appraisals over a much wider geographical area, and is spending a heck of a lot more time developing the, you know, developing what the value of the property is. It's not something they're doing like, you know, they get the phone call in the morning and they, you know, turn the appraisal over in the afternoon. So a lot more work goes into this. So anyway, um, okay, so we've done that. Um, now the last thing we want to do is talk about what the final report is going to be. There's two different kinds of reports that you're going to see. Uh, there's typically either a very, very short form type of report. You know, you fill in the form. I would venture to say that nowadays with the use of computers and how it's so easy to just plug information in and hit a button and get a report out. I remember on appraisal I got on a piece of property not that long ago, and I mean, I forget how many pages. It was just the most elegant, beautiful-looking appraisal you ever saw. had pictures of the subject properties, addresses, maps, all that stuff, but it's easier now because we can plug that in information into a computer and generate those reports, and they're not that hard. In other words, the same information we'd put maybe on a form can now be put into a computer, and by adding that plus those photographs, we can have a really nice, pretty-looking report. Okay? It doesn't mean it's more accurate. It just means that we can produce them, okay? And they will look very elegant. Um, you know, they say that, uh, you know, so you have a short form, you have a narrative report. A narrative report is going to be a very extensive report, talk about a lot of different things. What should be in the report, though? Here's the things that they're looking that should be in the report. Number one, there should be an adequate description of the property that is being appraised. Number two, a statement of the purpose and the scope of the appraisal. Why are you appraising the property in the first place? Is it for a loan, a sale, a divorce, you know, reconstruction, new construction? Why are you doing it? Number three, an adequate description of the neighborhood. Is the neighborhood a good place? Is it increasing in value, decreasing in value? Is it a high rental area? Is it backed up right next to a freeway? Is there a lot of noise? Are there electrical lines running overhead? What is the neighborhood like? Okay, because that has a major effect on the value. The date at which the value is estimated, very important, because the appraiser is saying as of this date, which could be changed next month, okay? Next thing is qualifying conditions or assumptions. Whatever the appraiser is putting down is conditions and assumptions that they're making when they render those opinions. Uh, six, factual data, things like maps, photographs with analysis and interpretations. You know, so you'll see a lot of that. This is where the subject property is located. It's not uncommon to have like a Thomas Brothers map where they'll actually plot where these other properties are, are that they're using as comparable properties. So the, person looking at the appraisal can say, hey, yeah, that's really close, or no, it's not, okay? And pictures of those properties. Uh, the processing of the data by one of the more three approaches to value the correlation. What that means is that the appraisal may have just market, or it may just have income, or it may have just cost, or it may have all three, okay? In fact, the appraiser may use all three and test all three 
to come up and help them decide what they think is maybe the best value. Okay, so that may include all three. Finally, uh, they're going to come out with uh, an estimate of the appraisal. They're going to tell you what the estimate is, the final value that they've come up with. And they're going to go ahead and put their name, address, and license number of the appraiser and the signature on the report. Okay, that's the entire appraisal report done. Okay. What does the appraisal cost? It really depends upon, you know, how much work goes into it. If it's a residential appraisal, you may find out that the appraisers may be spending three, you know, charging three, four hundred dollars to do that appraisal. If the appraiser has to go out and go to a lot of different areas to gather data, it's a tough place, it's a tough piece of property, it's something that they don't, that's not normal, like we, uh, we've talked about in other classes, it's a geodesic dome home, it's a log home, it's, uh, you know, it's built out of beer cans. I mean, some of these houses we see, that's going to take more time to find that, okay? Um, okay. And I think that's pretty much it as far as the appraisal goes. Now, a couple things I want to mention to you so that you're familiar with this. These are the requirements for the license. Now, the reason why I'm mentioning this is because some people will turn around and say, I want to become a real estate appraiser. As one of our very successful real estate appraisers told us the other day, Jeff Webb, who's been in the business for 25 or 30 years, one of the things that you really have to realize if you're going to be an appraiser, you're going to have to be a salesperson. And that's right from the horse's mouth, right from his mouth that has been in the business. What you really are doing is you're selling your services. You're selling your time. You know, you've got 8, 10, 12 hours a day to sell or to, to do work. That's what, that's what you're charging for, those hours. So what becomes important is that you're the kind of individual that has no problem getting out there, talking to real estate agents, talking to mortgage people, talking to attorneys, accountants, and letting them know what services you provide, okay? Going to meetings, getting to know who they are, okay? Making sure you're available when they need you, okay? Otherwise, there are different levels of the licenses. This is through the Office of Real Estate Appraisers, which is here in Sacramento. This, uh, you have these types of, and what I like about this is on one page, it's easier to see it this way than it is on their website. But here's the licenses that you would have. You have a trainee license, you have a residential license, you have a certified residential license, and you have a general certified, a certified general license. Okay? This is typically talking about residential types of property, not commercial, residential. And most of the time, I, most of the time, you will get a residential appraiser that says, I have no time to do the commercial stuff. If I do that, it's going to take me too much time, and I'm going to be losing money because I could be doing all these residential appraisers. The commercial appraisers will do just the opposite. They'll say, I don't want to be in the residential business. It doesn't interest me. I just want to do residential. I want to do commercial property. If I start fooling around with that residential stuff, what's going to end up happening is taking time away from my commercial business. So usually you'll find they'll go in one or two tracks. It's very hard to jump back and forth. Um, you know, if you really think it's anything with sell, trying to sell properties. Okay, down here gives you for a trainee license education, you have to have a minimum of 90 hours of appraisal related education. Uh, experience none. Uh, exam, you must pass the ABQ, which is an exam. Uh, that's the appraisal qualities board's exam. Okay, ABQ, which is by the appraisal foundation. They're the ones who set the standards. 
to be a residential examination, and you must work under a licensed appraiser. Okay, You cannot hang your shingle out there. As Jeff was saying yesterday, it used to be that you could just be a straight real estate broker anymore. No, you have to be a licensed real estate appraiser to do these. Okay. Second thing is that the second level is a residential license. Again, the same, pretty much the same education requirements, but experience requirements, you have to have 2,000 hours. This is usually the hardest thing for students to get because what they're trying to do is they're trying to get, they're trying to get an appraiser to employ them as a trainee to do appraisal work. And if truth be known, you know, appraisers, again, they only have their time to sell. They're usually fairly small operations. They're working out of their house. The other thing that comes up is, hey, if they train you, they're training their competition. <laughs> you know, So usually what the appraiser looks for is what do you as an employee bring to the table? You know, What can you do? And typically what that is is you're going to help develop your own business. Okay, You're going to, you're going to be calling on, appra uh, on mortgage companies and letting them know that you do this. And then you're going to do it, and I'm going to assist you doing it, but you're the one generating the business, not me. Okay. Uh, again, minimum of 2,000 hours, you have to pass the exam. Okay. And then it tells you what you can appraise, one to four units. And again, anytime they have a level of, of uh, value that you can appraise, keep in mind that that can always be changing because property is increasing in value. So you always want to go back and check what that is. Next level is a... Um, your education requirements go up. You have more hours of experience, 2,500 hours, and you can appraise one to four units, and your, uh, your, what you can appraise goes up. Then you have a certified general license, same thing, more hours. Uh, your, the level of what you can appraise goes up from there. Okay, so you can actually uh, go out. Uh, and appraise other properties. But the point is, is that it's, there's a step process that you go through. You know, you're not just being turned loose to appraise anything that you want. You're going through a series of steps to get there. Okay? Um, I'm trying to see if there's anything else that I need to mention to you at this point in time. Uh, very quickly, um, I'm just going to point out that on the website, on your website, the Blackboard website, I have two things in here for this particular chapter that you may be interested in. Uh, back to the um, other chapter, let me see if I can get this really quickly, website links underneath the first chapter that we had, which was right here. I have the Office of Real Estate Appraisers with all of the information that you need, who to contact, what the requirements are, uh, I think we've talked about this before, so this is the organization that you would be contacting, working with, talking to, so on and so forth. They're the ones that give the exams and everything else. So we've showed you that. I'm going to close out of here. The other thing that people will go, well, who's this other organization? Who are they? Well, underneath website links, I've put another one down here, which is in the last chapter we just talked about under appraisal methods, uh, where I had Marshall Swift, I put the appraisal foundation. Okay, they're back in Washington, D.C. These are the people that are actually setting the standards. I know I've tried to make this text bigger, and I can't, the way they have the site set up. But they're the ones that actually establish the requirements. They're the ones that set the guidelines. For those of you that are interested,
Over here, you have uh, some links here that you can go to. So, for example, one of the things that I find interesting is what is their mission. They'll tell you what their mission happens to be, you know, what they're doing, you know, what the purpose of them there. They establish the educational requirements, so on and so forth. And if you want, for those of you that are interested, write down in about, uh, let me see, the mission in history, which is located right here, really goes into detail of why they even exist. And it talks about, right in here under background, about the big fiasco that we had in the savings and loan industry. And it talks about how they actually got to where they are today. In fact, it says something in here. Uh, it says, in the, and I know you can't see this, so I'll just read it for you. It says, in the early 1980s, the crisis in the savings and loan industry highlighted the need to improve appraisal practices throughout the United States. Uh, the difficulties and losses experienced by many lending institutions illustrated the importance of ensuring that appraisals are based upon established, recognized standards and free from outside pressures. Okay, so it, the point is, is it goes through and it explains how they got where they got. Uh, there was a huge amount of money that was lost during that savings and loan fiasco. Um, many times, and there was a lot of contributing factors. It wasn't only appraisals. It was a lot of stupid underwriting lending practices. It was where they got into businesses that they had no background in. Uh, it was just a, pretty much a disaster. Although at the same time, you know, you had appraisals where the appraisals were coming in. They were... Uh, Properties that were appraised, and when people went out there and checked, they found out the property either wasn't worth the value or maybe there was no even house on it. There was no house located on it. So there's a lot of just out-and-out deception. So in order to stop that from happening, that's why they set the standards and why they make them so tight. Uh, and that's only to protect us because guess what? The people that had to bail out the savings and loan industry was we. The taxpayers of the United States had to cough up the bucks, the money, to help fix that problem. So we have a really uh, strong interest in making sure that the appraisals are done correctly, and it's a very, very important part of the profession, very important part of the, the whole entire real estate profession. So with that, I think we're pretty close to the end. Uh, the next time that we meet, we're going to be moving on to sub subdivisions and government control. I really encourage you to spend some time in understanding what the appraisal process is, going back through that. Very good, great profession. With that, I want to thank you very much for watching, and we'll see you back here the next time. Have a nice day.